you were so good. Jesus, you were so good. Lord, this makes no sense that we can come before you. And in all your glory, in all your beauty, we can come before you. Lord, thank you. God, we don't understand why you would reach out for us again. Lord, we can't quite grasp that understanding of love. The love that you saw in us to go through all that pain. Lord, help us to understand that deeper. Help us to understand what the power of your cross does in us. Help us to be grateful beyond all measure. You are so worthy, Jesus. You are so worthy, Jesus. Thank you for who you are, Lord. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus, we declare your kingship here this evening. God, we declare your kingship here this evening. I thank you that you are who you said you are. That you did what you said you would do. Jesus, what a beautiful Savior. Yeshua, what a beautiful Savior. Thank you. God, we declare you the King of this house and Lord of all, Jesus. God, we declare your kingship in this city. We declare your kingship in this nation. Thank you, Lord. In your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Thank you, team. Mal, can you turn this down a smidgen, please? Thanks. I want to, I'm going to preach because I really feel like there is something here. And it's not because I, there's not many of us here tonight. It's not, that's not upsetting for me that there's not people in the room. What's upsetting for me is that I know that God can release some of the pain that we're feeling in this city. It can release some of the pain that people are feeling in this nation, that lostness, that that suffocating drowning that people are going through. And it's not it's not that I have fancy words or can put it together in a fancy manner, but that there's power in the scriptures. That there is power in what God gave us. There is power in what He left us and where He asks us to stand. We've been going through this book of Ephesians, and you know, Paul speaks about all this incredible stuff. But he ends with this. He ends with this, this understanding of spiritual warfare. Thanks, buddy. He ends with this understanding of how to fight. And I think that at this very moment where the world is at and where we are at as a church, we need now more than ever to fight. I was listening to some worship today and I heard the worship leader say, um, she said, you know, 
before she started, she said, we're not fighting. We, 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 we worship from a place of victory. We're not, we don't have to fight. And I half agree because we are fighting. We're in a fight. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't give us what I'm going to preach this morning or this evening, today. We are in a fight. But the beauty of the fight we're in is that we're fighting from victory, that God has won and, the, and it's already rigged, that we fight from a place of victory, but we still have to fight. Otherwise, this verse makes zero sense that, that, that Paul would say, put on your armor. Why? If we're not fighting, why wear armor? But he clearly states, put it on, get ready to battle. And I want to show something to you that I find fascinating and I think that it, it reveals the, the different times and seasons you've heard sermon after sermon about. But there's a difference between a time of peace and a time of war. If you've got a Bible, go with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Two Samuel chapter eleven, the story of David and Bathsheba. We've heard the story time and time and time again. But there's something interesting that I saw in this. Two Samuel chapter eleven it says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they ravaged among the, the Aminianites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and he was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. David sees Bathsheba. He goes and he calls for Bathsheba to come, and he sleeps with her. She didn't come on her own accord. He forced her to come. He forced himself upon Bathsheba. But the interesting thing in this verse here is it says that in the spring of the year, the time when kings go to battle, David was never ever supposed to be in the town. David was never ever supposed to be in Israel. David was supposed to be where all kings go, on the front line of battle. I've been watching this war series about old the Dark Ages and the war between the Vikings and the Christians. And what fascinates me is that every time they go to war, the king is in the front line. He's the first one who runs out to battle. He takes the charge forward. And right here it says, the time when kings go out to, ba- out to battle, David sent somebody else. And I nearly fell off my chair today when I was reading this again in the ESV, and it says, It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. Some Bible translations say bed, and it essentially means just a place that you went to rest. But it was the afternoon, so maybe he was taking a nap. But I see him sitting at, in my mind's eye, I see him sitting on a couch like this with Dorito dust on his chest and like a can of Coke in his hand and Netflix playing and just like, like he hasn't showered in days. He looks, just looks filthy. And he kind of goes up to the rooftop and he carries himself over and he sees this beautiful lady and he says, I'll have her. We always see David in this beautiful light, but in this moment, in this moment he's painted as such a scoundrel. He's painted as this, this man who should have been out at war. 
So he gets Bathsheba, he gets her pregnant. She comes to him, she says, I'm pregnant. So he sends for, for her husband because she's married. He sends for Uriah, her husband, to come, to come back from war. So he obviously comes back, he rides back to the town. And he says to, he says to, to Uriah, he says, go and, go and enjoy yourself, right? He's trying to trick Uriah to go and sleep with his wife so that it doesn't look as if somebody else has got her pregnant. But he says, go and enjoy yourself, go and rest, go and be with your, with your wife, go and eat, go and drink. And look at, your, look at Uriah's response in 2 Samuel 11, 11. Uriah says to David, David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this. Uriah realized, I will not go and rest in the place of comfort when my countrymen are dying on the field. I will not go and rest while the things that we are supposed to do is falling apart in the field. And the beautiful thing there that it says is that in the field was the ark. The presence of God was where? On the battlefield where the king should have been. What we see here is, David, you should have never, ever been at home. You should have never, ever been sitting on the couch. You should have never, ever been in that place to fall into the arms of Bathsheba. You should have been where the king was. You should have been where your countrymen were. And the reason why this gets me so emotional is because this is the church. This is every single one of us who's sitting at home and refuses to press in to the, to the, the presence of God, refuses to go to the front. We're sitting at home on our couch with our Netflix on and our Cheeto dust on our face. And God's not there. But then we have the audacity to come as a people and cry out and say, God, why won't you move on us? Because we're at home on the couch instead of being on the front lines where our people are and where the Ark of the Covenant, where the glory and the fullness of God is. This is a scary lesson for us right now. We are allowing time and time and time again for the enemy to take ground on a, vict on a battle that he's already lost. We allow the enemy to take ground on a battlefield in which he's already lost. That's why when you get to this verse in Ephesians 6, and David, he's, he's drawn this beautiful picture for the Ephesians, and he said, now this is the last thing I want to leave you with. The most impactful thing I can get you is the, the tools in which you can achieve the task I've laid before you. He draws this beautiful picture of the Ephesians. He paints this amazing position to be with God, and he ends and he says, do you want to know how you get it? Church of Ephesians, Church of the Gold Coast. You put on the armor that's laid before you. And the interesting thing about battle armor is that you don't wear the armor to sit at home on the couch. David wouldn't have been wearing armor when he was sitting on the couch and sleeping with Bathsheba. So what this reveals to me is that there is a time for war and there is a time for peace. The church right now needs people who will put on the armor and fight. 
We talk a lot about the remnant. We get excited about the remnant. But the remnant was called. They were the ones in the wine press like Gideon, treading out the seed, treading out the word of God. They were the ones on the front lines in the battle like Uriah who said, I will not rest until my countrymen come home. I will not sleep until the reality of what we're fighting for has been made known. Bless you. So uh, Paul writes, he says this, Finally, after all I've said, everything I've given to you, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all, stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, as and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and of the sword, and sorry, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all power and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me that words may be given to me. In, the, in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am, I am an ambassador in chains, that I might declare it boldly as I ought to speak. These are evil times. We are fighting against the powers and the principalities of the air. We are fighting in a realm which we can't readily see. We are fighting things that we don't quite understand. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, and the cosmic powers. Because of this, he says, put on the armor. Because of who we're fighting. We have to understand that we are, we are being spiritual beings first. But we live in a soulish realm. We live in a worldly place. Our makeup is three parts, spirit, soul, body. Our spirit man is saved and hidden in Christ. But it's our soul now that, that can be attacked and can be, can be ripped apart in this place. So we have to learn, like Paul said, to renew our minds, to take off our soulish understanding and place on our spiritual understanding that is hidden in Christ. We all have the mind of Christ. The difficulty is living from that place and operating at all times from that place. Our battle in this world is against the forces of darkness. And I want to tell you right now, whatever it is that's taking place in the spiritual realm, whatever it is that's shifting over this nation and other nations, the, the, the Christians are being battered at the moment, because they don't understand this spiritual truth. They don't understand the fact that there are things fighting against you. 
Jesus says, repent. Why should we repent? Because the kingdom of God is at hand. It's right here, right now. We can operate in the kingdom or we can choose to operate in not the kingdom. So if it's not the kingdom of light, it has to be the kingdom of what? Darkness. But we have to learn as a people how to prepare ourselves, how to ready ourselves, how to fight on a plane we don't quite understand. God has empowered us. He has given us the ability to stand in His authority and act on His behalf. But the problem is is that we don't know how to operate like that. So what we become is a group of people with sticks and stones running out to fight an enemy with automatic weapons because we don't realize what God's given us. We have to learn as a people how to operate in the spiritual place in which we are, which is hidden in Christ. And when we operate from that place, we push back what Jesus says at Caesarea Philippi, the gates of hell. We push back the enemy when we learn who we are, when we learn that we're founded on Christ, we learn that, that he is who we come through. He is who we operate in. Does that make sense? We have to understand how to operate in the spiritual realm, how to operate as a part of the army of God, the body of Christ, standing and pushing back the gates of hell. Paul says, therefore, put on the armor. Because of this battle you're in, you're going to need the right equipment. You're going to need to stand firm in the things that God's given us. So he explains the armor of God, and he says, you're going to need this. Therefore, because we're fighting an enemy, these are the weapons, these are the things you've been given. So the first one he lists, therefore, therefore, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. The first one that he puts forward is the belt of truth. In, in this understanding, in the way that, that Paul is writing this, a belt, which is hilarious because it's in this show I've been watching, But the belt wasn't a belt like we have to hold your pants up. The belt that they wore was the belt that they clipped their weapons to. So when you would go into the the Christian place or you go into their holy place, you would unclip your weapons. So you would clip off your belt and on it were all the things that you you had to fight back the enemy. And it's interesting because Paul is saying the, the thing that holds our weapons is truth. I like to watch a lot of uh, reformed guys and a lot of people who write against the charismatic movement, who write against the things of, of God. When they see things happening, they say, that can't be God. The only way we can combat and understand who God is and the way he moves is by understanding the truth he's given us. So if the spirit starts to pop out, if things start to move and shake in his place, you have to be able to discern, is this God? The only way you can do that is the belt of truth. The only way you can do that is by understanding the scriptures, by understanding who God is. In John 8, 31 to 32, Jesus, he says to them, he says, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth 
and the truth will set you free. We quote that verse all the time. I'll know the truth and the truth will set me free. But the beginning of it is that we have to become his disciples. And in order to become his disciples, Jesus says we will abide in his word. To abide in his word, we have to stay in that place. We have to stay in who he is. Is everyone with me? The church has to rise up and we have to become disciples. Because if we don't become disciples, we cannot disciple somebody else. The only way we become disciples as a people is that we abide in the word. We abide in the Logos word, which is that word that gets used, that we abide in Christ. That word abide, to abide means to accept and act in accordance with. God is calling us not just to to, to know him, but to act in accordance with him, to act in a way that we say, Jesus, we act on your behalf. Every time we take communion and we use those words, Lord, we will act on your behalf. That's what Jesus was saying when he broke bread. He was saying, I'm giving you my body, I'm giving you my flesh, and what I'm asking of you is to come and act on my behalf. We have to know the truth, become disciples, live in his word, Live from his word and let the truth set us free. The next thing Paul puts to them is the breastplate, the breastplate of righteousness. In a war setting, when you go to war, the breastplate is one of the most important pieces because it protects your vital organs, protects your heart, your liver, protects your back and your sides. It wraps around. And the reason that it's so interesting that it's righteousness is this is one of the biggest things that the the charismatic movement struggled with because we call this the law. God's not asking you to stand in righteousness because he's a God who needs to be appeased and he gets appeased when we be good girls and boys. God is asking you to stand in righteousness because it will protect you from the, from the attacks of the enemy. See, sin kills us. It brings death upon our life. The Bible says I put before you blessings and curses. Choose blessings. So when he says put on a chest plate of righteousness, when, when leaders and, and, and preachers stand from the pulpit and they say, remove the sin from your life, the reason they're preaching that is because it's killing you. Because without it, you're running to battle with no chest plate on. You're getting slammed one way or another and you're going, I don't understand why all this attack is coming on me, why it's hurting so much. Because you failed to put on the chest plate. All your vital organs are showing. And we see nothing. It, it makes me so sad when I see Christians who are so strong and have been for so long get taken out by something. It's because they've failed to keep themselves in right standing. They've failed to wear righteousness to protect their vital organs. We have to put on the breastplate of righteousness. The next one he gives us are the shoes of readiness. Romans 10.15 it says, And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. As a, as a people ready to fight, we have to be ready. We have to be able to preach and exclaim the gospel everywhere that we go. I think I've told this story before, but 
we were at a a, um, a Christian festival, and uh, my band was playing, and we were playing the next night. And some friends of ours, we we'd got a house, and there was a heap of heap of us staying in the house. And a friend of mine said, "Hey, um, do you know the guy who's preaching tomorrow?" It was like an Easter Sunday service. He said, "Do you know the guy who's preaching tomorrow?" And I was like, "Oh, no, I don't know anything about him." I said, "Why?" And she said, "Oh." I want to bring my unsaved friend tomorrow, but I'm, I just want to make sure he's a good preacher because I want to give him the best chance of getting saved. I said, oh, what? Why, don't, why don't you get him saved? She said, oh, I don't preach very well and I'm not very good about telling people who Jesus are. I said, but can't you just explain your faith and let them see who Jesus is in you? She said, oh, no, those guys do it better. The preachers do it better, so I'm just going to leave it for the preacher. I remember leaving that and going, man, how far have we lost this? It's not my job to get your friends and family saved. They're your friends and family. That's your job. Your job is to get them saved. You're in their life. You're the one who's equipped, trained, and ready. You're the one who should have the shoes on, on your armor plate, be ready to step in at any moment. That if, you're, if your friend or a family member says, man, who's this Jesus these people keep talking about? You're ready to prance. You're ready to jump in. You've laid the groundwork. You know who you are. What we created in the West, in a, in a, in a, a, a the contemporary style church, is that it's always somebody else's job. I brought my friend to church, Ben, and you, you preached too long, or you preached too short, or you didn't preach about the right topic, or the worship band didn't do the right stuff. By the time they get to that door, they should already know who Jesus is. They should already be, be broken by the, the love of God and be encouraged by who he is. That when you bring them in here, they're coming in to join and go, wow, there's other people who've realized what I just found out. We have to be ready. We have to be ready. Now, I feel like this is one of those little training camps. I keep seeing this that thing in my head, right? Because, yeah. The next one, the shield of faith. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. While we're in worship, God put something in my heart. We're going to do this at the end, regardless of how awkward it is. But the shield of faith in this um, like I said, I've been, been watching this this show, uh, Vikings versus the Christians, and it's quite an interesting dynamic of the way they portray the Christians. But there's something interesting that when I was writing this today, I, I saw this picture, and there was this thing that the Vikings do, and they actually taught the the Christians how to do it, and and it got trained, and now, well, not now because we don't use shields anymore, but when they used to fight, they carried this principle over. And one of the commanders in the army would yell out shield war when they were going into battle, right? And he would scream out at the top of his lungs, shield war. And all the soldiers would come and they would stand shoulder to shoulder and they would put their shields out and they would layer the shields. And then someone would come over the back and they would drop a shield over the top and someone behind them would drop a shield over the top. So that they created with the whole army this tank-like movement that no arrows could get through. So they would come out onto the field, they would see the archers at the back and they would call shield wall and they would build this tank and slowly, step by step, they would move together 
and they would move together step by step, slowly. And there's, a, there's one scene where it's real boring. I'm like, come on, because they're both shield walling and just slowly walking toward each other. And it's like three minutes. And you're like, can you hurry up? But the thing is, is that the moment they move the shield down, they get shot by an archer. The moment they step away from the, from the, the, the body of their army, they're vulnerable and they get shot. So what they have to do is stand shoulder to shoulder with their shield up and step in unison. It's almost like Paul talks about this as the body, that it says here that it's a shield of faith, that that faith that we carry together as a body of believers protects us from the arrows of the enemy. What they do in this thing is that they step shoulder to shoulder, they carry the thing and they wait and they wait and they wait until they get close enough where they can all get their swords out and just hack each other apart. That's where Jess stops watching and I'm like, yes, get them. But the, the beauty of this is that when we see at the shield of faith, Paul is saying to us that that faith that you carry, that you know, that you know, that you know, that God is for us, therefore nobody can be against us, that's the protection we carry into every single battle. But the strength of that faith is not just me alone with one shield. The strength of that faith is when I join shoulder to shoulder with Kirsten and we put our shields up. And then Trudy steps beside us and now there's three of us. The beauty of the body of Christ, the gathering of the believers, is that on your own you are vulnerable. On your own you will get shot down. But in the body, protected, standing shoulder to shoulder and pushing against, we can fight against the things that are coming against us. Do you know the problem with this? At the moment in the church we stand shoulder to shoulder and guys get knives out and just start stabbing the guys beside them. And inside the wall, men just start dropping because we, we get all prideful. Hey, hey, his shield's better. We just stab him. And the moment one guy goes down, there's a weakness in the wall. Paul is saying the whole thing he's preaching through to the Ephesians is you are one body, you're one flesh. Come together, join together, put up your shields, build this thing, and let's press against the enemy. What we do now is we go, nah, I'm gonna, nah, everyone's hurt me in this. I'm gonna get out of my own. We stand out there under our shield and just hope for the best. And that's if we have a shield. That's if we've remembered our faith. If we remember who we are. If we carry the chest plate. Most of the guys are just standing out getting barreled. Come together. Join. Lock in. Bring your faith. Put it next to Sean's. Put it next to Willem's. Put it in there and hold tight. Build one another. Hey, bro, you're holding your shield so good. Thanks, man. So are you. Are we encouraging each other to stand and then step in unison? And step in unison. The next one is the helmet of salvation. In my opinion, this is the one that we miss the most. What is a helmet cover? Someone. I thought I was going to get at least a snap reaction, like someone was going to go for a free point there. I'm lobbing you the ball here. What does this helmet cover? Your noggin, right? Your head. On your body, aside from your vital organs, this is the business center. This makes sure everything else works. Matt can confirm that because he's a paramedic. 
If this breaks down, everything else breaks down. When we, when, when we start messing around with our understanding and our brain, our body starts to shut down. That's why depression can bring on all kinds of sickness. Right? When we start thinking poorly, our body starts to react in all kinds of different ways. Negative thoughts start to shut down our body. And Paul says here, the helmet of salvation, cover your head. Put something over the most important part of your being. And he calls it the helmet of salvation. Because at the cross, God bought you with all that he had. He made you from an orphan into a son. So the helmet of salvation is to remind me who I am. I'm a son, not an orphan. I've been bought and I've been paid for. And I am a king and a priest. I am a son to the Most High. So when I've got my helmet on and the enemy tries to whisper in my ear and tell me that I'm no good and tell me that I can't achieve anything and I'm going nowhere, if I don't have my helmet, my understanding of who I am, who God's called me to be, then those things start to take root in my understanding, my mind. The Jews would write on their doorposts the verse from Deuteronomy 6.4, which, which it tells them to put it on there. But it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They would put, before they left their house, they would grab the door handle or the sheet or whatever it was that was there. And the last thing they would see on the doorpost, the God of Israel is one. And in their understanding, they understood what that meant, that he was for them, that he would pave the way. So as they go about their day, they're remembering God is one. The beauty for us in that and for Messianic Jews that understand the Messiah is Jesus said, Lord, make them one with me like I am one with you. So for us, the power of that verse in Deuteronomy, as we leave our house, is we go, God, I am one with you. You are in me and I in you. And when I go out in my day, I see you like you, I see me like you see me. What they're doing is every time they leave the door, they're putting on their helmet of salvation. They're going, I won't go into battle. I won't go into where the enemy can get me without knowing who God is, without knowing who he's made me. We have to get this one right. We have to learn how to put our helmet of salvation on. There are so many people right now in this house, in other houses, struggling with depression, struggling with thoughts of not knowing who they are, struggling with all kinds of things in their brain, in their understanding, because they don't know who God has told them they are. They don't have their helmet on and they're getting battered and bruised. He continues on, he says, Take the helmet and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The first weapon that we see that we can actually fight with is the Rhema, Word of God. So, what is the Rhema, Word of God? The Rhema, Word of God is that still small voice. The Rhema, Word of God is when we read his scriptures and he reveals him through it. 
It's not just words on a page. It's a power in our hand. It's a sword that we cut and we stab and we slice. That when we finally got to the enemy in our shield wall, when we finally got to the end with all of our faith, we pull out the powerful rhema word of God. And we cut through the enemy. We cut through the things that are coming against us. It's the still small voice that reveals more than worldly perspectives can understand. It's the depth of scripture that goes beyond the face value. It's the deeper revelations of God that pierce through the darkness. And it's the voice that utters the mysteries that we cannot understand. The sword that you hold in your hand is the answer to the question people don't know how to ask. The sword we have in our hands is what Daniel revealed to the king. There's been so many times in my life where I've said, hey, I don't know why I know this, but I know the answer to that thing. Or someone's asked me a question instantly. A, a, a verse has jumped to my brain and I remember and I can speak into that. Because God has put a sword in my hand that allows me to cut apart the things of the enemy. The wisdom of God comes when we understand his scriptures. When we read it more than just a book. We say, Lord, who are you in this? Reveal yourself to me beyond the words that are on this page. I learned something really interesting a couple of weeks ago. We've been doing some, um, just looking at how we're, we're shaped um, financially in the church and just looking for ways in which we can. And I, was, I was meeting with a, a, um, an incredible guy who's an accountant. And we were talking about what a religious institution is because in order to get the things that we get as a church, you have to be a religious institution. And, you know, it's really funny. Two of the major things to be an, an RI, a religious institution, are you have to meet regularly and you have to open and read from a holy text, right, which they describe as being canonized or something that's beyond a certain period of time. And this accountant who was a Christian, an incredible guy at that, he turns to me because he's writing on the whiteboard for me. He's writing and he says, so this is a religious institution. He's breaking it down for me. And then he turns around and with tears in, the eyes, in his eyes, he says, the Office of Fair Trade has almost closed or taken away the religious institution from churches because they've gone and sat in their meetings and no holy scriptures have been read from. He says, you can lose... Your setting as a religious institution if, if you do not read from your holy text. And he just looked at me, he said, man, how far have we come that as Christians we misunderstand the value and the beauty of the word of God. We misunderstand the power that when there's a problem we can turn to it. When there's an exciting thing that's happening in our life, we can turn to it. When we're feeling down, we can turn to it. When we're feeling filled with joy, we can turn to it. Paul is saying in this, guys, the weapon you have in your hand is the same weapon that God carried Israel through the desert with. It's the manna from heaven, the revelation every day that gets brought new and fresh to our, to our mouths. It feeds us, it nourishes us, but it puts a sword in our hand so that we can fight. We want to know why so much of the church is powerless because they've laid their weapons down. They've taken... They're sword and they've gone, I don't, 
I don't want to do, I don't want to read it anymore. I want to be a Christian, but I don't want this anymore. And then they wonder why they get to the end and they're getting hacked. It's because they laid their weapon down so long ago. We have to pick back up and understand the power that's been given to us. He continues on in Ephesians 6.18 and he says, Praying all the time, all the time in the Spirit, or praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. That word supplication essentially means honor. To do it, sorry, doesn't mean honor. Scrap that. Rewind. That word supplication means um, humility, to be humble, to come in a lowly way. And I love that he ends with this because he says, pray at all times in the Spirit. Shree, you praying tonight when, when you were worshipping was incredibly powerful. And this sort of jumped into my mind when you started to pray. And I don't know, maybe you do, but I just want to encourage you to keep doing that. Pray in tongues all the time. I was sitting at dinner with a guy. Jess and I were uh, in Adelaide and we were at dinner with um, a guy named Kevin Zadaya. And he said to us, we were sitting there and he brought this verse up and he said, you know, Paul tells us to pray in tongues all time, at all times. And someone said at the table, yeah, but he can't mean... Like at all times. And with a straight face, I, I, I remember this day, Kevin looked at him and he said, why? And he's like, well, because that would mean that at all times we're always praying in tongues. He goes, yeah. So the guy said, so are you praying in tongues right now? And hilariously, he said, yeah, I just got a word from God. Do you want me to tell you what it is? And he's like, what do you mean? He says, I'm praying in tongues in my mind all the time. He says, then when there's nobody around, when I'm at home, I'm praying in tongues. I'm in the shower, I'm praying in tongues. And I said to him, but doesn't, isn't there like, isn't there something about that that makes you feel like it's, it's not important? And he said, why? Because we don't do it in special occasions. He said, the, the power of praying in tongues is your connection in a spirit realm past your soul. He said, so all the time your body is being nourished by this, the, the words of heaven. And I remember just thinking, man, what an incredibly powerful thought. What Paul is saying here is he's saying, if you believe, if you pray in tongues and you believe in the power of praying in tongues, that it connects your spirit to your soul in a way that we can't understand, why not do it all the time? I remember coming away from that and thinking to myself, I'm so challenged by that. And then Adam was in our home, maybe it was before that, but Adam was in our home and I had a dream the night when um, Adam was here, Adam Thompson, and I had a dream that I was standing in a room, an empty room, and I was praying in tongues and I had my hands open and I was praying in tongues and when I opened my eyes, there was a line of people that were coming and standing before me and just laughing at me and pointing while I'm praying in tongues and laughing and then they would move off. The next person would come and they would point and laugh. And I remember I went downstairs. I woke up that the morning and I went downstairs and Jess and I had kind of made a pact that we wouldn't ask or tell Adam any of our dreams just to make him feel like when he was in our home, he didn't have to interpret. Um, Adam Thompson is a guy who has a ministry for interpreting dreams. And we didn't want to make him feel like he had to interpret our dreams, right? 
because we wanted to feel comfortable, like he didn't have to be on or, or anything. So we kind of decided. But I was a bit perplexed by this dream. So I went downstairs and I was making a coffee and he was sitting at the dining room table. I said, oh, morning, mate. He said, morning. I, I grabbed the coffee machine and as I grabbed it, he just said, you had a dream last night, didn't you? And in my head I'm thinking, I made a pack with Jess. I made a pack with Jess, but I can't lie to the guy. So I'm like, yeah, I did. And he said, what was it? I said, no, that's right, man. I'll make you a coffee. You don't have to interpret my dream. It's fine. He's like, what was it? I was like, oh, okay. Well, I guess we're doing this. And I told him what the dream was. And he said, do you know that there's a power in your tongue that you're not using? And he said, God showed it to me before I came. He said, the fact that you will only pray in tongues when you're at church or when you're in a holy setting is, the, is disempowering who you are. I said, so what would you suggest? He said, pray all the time like Paul tells us to. He said, when you're in the shower, pray in tongues. When you're, when you're in the bath, pray in tongues. When you're driving to work, pray in tongues. When you're making a coffee, pray in tongues. He said, connect yourself into the plumb line of heaven all the time. And he said, watch what will happen in your life. You will, you will know things before people ask you. You will have a wisdom that people won't understand. And we all have access to that. And that's what Paul's saying. The last thing he gives us after he says, put on your weapons, put on your breastplate, put on your helmet, put on your belt, put on your shoes. And then he says, now, now that you've got it on, the last weapon in your arsenal is never cease praying. Don't cease. You're ready to go. Your, your, your gear's on. You're standing in, in the war and together you're all praying. You're standing and you're praying in tongues. You're holding together a people and then you step forward and more join. You step forward and more join. You step forward. This is what this is what God is asking of the remnant. What God is asking of the remnant is will you put on the armor? Will you get off the couch? Will you come to where the glory and where the, where the presence of God is? Because right now, I tell you, right now, we are in a season of war. We are in the springtime where it's good for kings to be at war. And guess what? Like the verse says that we all like, we are kings and priests. So guess where we need to be? At war. Because if we're at home on our couch, the only thing left is us to, like David, to fall to the biggest mistake he made. God redeemed him, rather. God redeemed him. But it was a journey that he should never have had to walk. He should have been on the battleground. He should have had his armor on. He should have been ready to fight. I want to end with this. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell, God speaking, I dwell in the high and holy place. I am the holy one. I'm the glorious one. I inhabit eternity and I dwell in the high and the holy place. But then he says something that should change our lives. He says, I also dwell with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. I also dwell in you if you will carry a contrite and lowly spirit. The one who inhabits eternity, if you will position your heart, will inhabit you. 
man becomes the dwelling place of the one who inhabits eternity. But there is there's a caveat in this. Because as we understand from the teaching through James, James says, but he gives more grace, therefore it says, God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. So right now we see one of the scariest things before us and one of the most beautiful things before us. If your heart is full of pride, God will oppose you. But if you can humble yourself, if you can bring yourself to a lowly, contrite place and say, Lord, you are all that I am. You are bigger than I could ever imagine. You are the one in which I worship. In everything that I do, the God of eternity who inhabits eternity will inhabit your life. Paul ends the letter to the Ephesians by giving us the tools to achieve the task he lays out in the beginning of the letter. So now it lands to us as a people, as the people of God, as the community of believers, as the soldiers, as the sons, as the servants, as the priests and as the kings. He says, will you put on the armor and come with me? Your countrymen are in the open field. The, my presence is in the open field. Will you come with me? At the risk of this being awkward, I'm going to ask that we can step out in faith tonight. I have been this week in a ton of conversations. I've had more meetings this week than I think I've ever had in my life. Some of them have been really encouraging and, and really forward-focused, but some of them have been people in dire positions to the point where I, I said, hey, I, I don't know what to do other than pray for you. I wish I could give you something better, but at the moment you're just going to have to accept my, my prayer and let me pray with you. You see, the enemy comes to steal, rob, and destroy and as a people, we want to go somewhere. We want to be encouraged to be strengthened. But he is coming and he is robbing the people. And I know there's a lot of people who can't be here tonight because of stuff that's going on, because of illness, because of other things that are, are, are hacking at their shins. So given that you're the brave people that have, have come this, this evening, I want to ask, can we take maybe 10 minutes, 15 minutes to wait on God? to pray, to stand in the gap for this community, to stand in the gap for the church of the Gold Coast, to stand in the gap for what God is doing. Can we this evening get off the couch? Can we put on the armor? And can we as a people stand for those who can't stand for themselves? Build the shield wall around those who are hurting so that they can get their armor back on and get back to their feet. Can we do that? I'm going to turn this microphone off. We can stop the recording. I'm not going to put any noise on. But do whatever you need to do. Stand, lay. But pray with me. Don't let me be the only one who prays. Pray with me. Stand with me. No one's judging you. No one's watching what words you say. But let us together right now put our shields together.
and fight 